This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. On this day in 2015, Jurgen Klopp's Borussia Dortmund played their final game under the Germans' guidance. After seven years at Mainz between 2001 and 2008, and then seven years at Dortmund from 2008 to 2015, it was time to move on. Klopp left Dortmund in a very different situation to the one that he had inherited. Under Thomas Doll, Dortmund finished 13th in the 2007-08 season, and change was certainly needed. By the time he departed, Klopp had become a Dortmund hero for life, despite an underwhelming final campaign. It's not been quite as dramatic a change that he's overseen at Anfield, but it's perhaps not too far off. So five years after his final Dortmund home game, we're going to take a look back at that period and assess what it might mean in terms of Klopp's time at Liverpool. I'm Matt Addison and alongside me for this special Jurgen Klopp podcast on the Blood Red channel is Ben McFadden, who is a president of Borussia Dortmund fan club London. Ben, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks a lot, Matt. We had you on our podcast a couple of weeks ago, our Liverpool Dortmund special, and it's uh, very, uh, very cool to be on your show today. Yeah, thanks very much for, for coming on, mates. Let's uh, let's go right back to the start then, first of all. I mean, can you tell us a, a little bit about where Dortmund were back in 2008 when that fresh-faced Jürgen Klopp took over the reins? I mean, it was a very different Dortmund to the one that we see today, wasn't it? Absolutely right. Absolutely right. I mean, uh, you only need to go back to 2005 to remember that Dortmund's finances were in a perilous state uh, under the previous uh, president, Gerd Niebaum, uh, the stadium had been expanded considerably over the years from initially 54,000 to uh, what we now see, which is uh, 83,000. And uh, the corners of the stadium, as Stadion or Signali Duna Park, as it's commercially known, uh, were closed in. The um, expansion of the stadium had cost so much money, basically. Um, and then Dortmund had had a, a series of years uh, where they basically, we only need to think back to the 97 team and so on. The years after that, when they won the championships, they had um, basically brought in massively... Um, Highly, highly paid uh, millionaire players like Andy Muller or um, Matthias Sama or other very well-known players. Um, coincidentally, many of them came from Juventus. Um, but Dortmund basically was spending beyond their means. And despite having had the, um, the highest average gate for many years, um, they basically were unable to afford the um, level of commitment that they were putting out there. And um, by the time 2005 came, um, they were basically, um, if I'm not mistaken, they were somewhere in the region of 80 million in debt. And um, they had to rely on um, shareholders and the city of Dortmund to bail them out uh, from a very bad uh, financial situation. Um, and at that point, basically, essentially, when Dortmund had failed to achieve Champions League or a European place uh, a couple of seasons in a row, uh, as you said, uh, under coach Thomas Doll, uh, I think I, I think you said that anyway, certainly was Thomas Doll, and Bert van Marwijk, um, basically the club um, were in a dire straits and Kloppo was brought in from Mainz where he'd been a fair... Uh, he, he'd been a very good uh, centre-forward and then later on in his career a, a right-back. He actually remains the lead goal scorer at Mainz 05 to this day. Um, I think he scored 65 goals in total. And um, although he's, he never mentions that, he's always very modest about his own career. Um, and essentially, um, it was very experimental. They gave him a, a short two-year contract, which is very short, really, for a manager. I mean, the average is about four normally. And um, they just wanted to really see whether this young uh, manager who'd done quite well at Mainz had managed to keep them up uh, and even get them into Europe, which was a huge achievement for a club like Mainz, which is a minuscule budget. Uh, you know, their stadium only seats 20,000. And, you know, it's hard, hard to see a club like that being in Europe. But, um, yeah, essentially, Kloppo came in. He made a very big impact. So what sort of things were the sort of big immediate impacts that he made? Was it recruitment? Was it coaching staff? Or what sort of ways did he improve the team and, and how long did that take? 
Um, essentially, um, Klopp, um, well, he brought in uh, Slejko Buvac, who, was, who moved with him to Liverpool later on. Uh, I believe he was Serbian, if I'm not mistaken, um, who, who, who basically brought, they brought in together a lot of professionalism, much like he's done at Anfield. He, he looked at the nutrition side, the training side. Uh, he brought in a new fitness coach. Um, and he basically um, professionalised things. It coincided with Dortmund moving to their new uh, training ground at the Hornbuschai um, and other investments in the club, which basically solidified uh, the position of the club. Um, and then basically Klopp showed a remarkably good hand at bringing in um, new talent. Um, the time when Kloppo uh, basically came to Dortmund, um, Kloppo, that's a term you're pretty familiar with, I reckon, yeah, I can use that. Yeah, definitely, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a, a, a term of endearment. Um, Dortmund had basically sold um, Rosicki to Arsenal for £9 million. Jan Koller had left to a a AS Monaco because they basically couldn't match his wages. These were very, very huge players uh, for Borussia Dortmund. And um, essentially Klopp had, you know, he had a lot of luck in, in finding young players uh, like um, Jakub Blasikowski, otherwise known as Kuba, who ended up having a very good run of, uh, you know, what was he there for about six, seven years. Uh, he brought in um, Lewandowski, Robert Lewandowski, who came in for, I think it was in the region of 325,000. It was literally nothing for what turned out to be probably this generation's best ever football player or best best ever striker let's say certainly at Dortmund he proved himself so um you know um essentially he professionalized things and he also brought in uh, some very good young players who were came in for next to nothing yeah i mean Dortmund obviously won the the Bundesliga title in 2010 11 i think it was and then retained it the following season I mean, first of all, was there a bit of a comparison to Liverpool, do you think, in that, you know, Dortmund from nowhere really had, had come out, improved under Jurgen Klopp and, and won that first title? Do you think there's a, a kind of comparison to be made there? Well, I think the thing to remember is that Klopp, the first season he came into Dortmund with a very, very... Um, certainly wasn't a team of stars, I can tell you that, uh, in 2008-2009, reached the UEFA Cup which Dortmund had failed to do two years in a row. And he also won the Super Cup, uh, beating Bayern in the final with the team. So, you know, he made an impact from the very first day and he was very popular at Dortmund from the very first day that he joined. Um, I think um, I think essentially the 2010-2011 uh, season was astonishing in that they had the youngest ever team to win the Bundesliga with an average of uh, 22.5 years. Um, you know, it's very remarkable. I mean, some of the players were 18, 19 years old. Um, you know, players like uh, Kevin Grosskreutz, for example, who I know pretty well. Um, and uh, and then and then also Mats Hummels that came in from Bayern, who ended up basically being one of uh, Germany's uh, best um, uh, centre-backs. Um, and essentially, uh, you know, you only need to look at the record in 2010-11 of uh, 28 unbeaten uh, matches, which is equals Bayern's all-time record, um, to see that they were a remarkable team. And as you said, you know, that season Bayern uh, knocked um, Barcelona out of the Champions League. So it wasn't as if Bayern were having a particularly weak season, which they had a few of in the 1990s. Um, not too many, I should emphasize. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, ten eleven was an absolutely astonishing team. I mean, even the second goalkeeper, Mitch uh, Mitch Langerak, was a, a superb goalkeeper that went on to prove his Spurs, the young Australian. I mean, you know, um, Borussia fans are very, very fond of the um, of that Kloppo generation. Yeah, you, you mentioned Bayern Munich there and the obvious success that they've had over the years. But I think maybe Pep Guardiola going there in, in summer 2013 was uh, a difficult one for, for Dortmund to take, really. Obviously, they'd been successful for a couple of seasons and then found it a little bit more difficult when coming up against him. But, I mean, just in, in terms of that second season with, with Dortmund winning the Bundesliga and retaining it, I mean, how did Klopp go about keeping the team fresh? Did he make changes that summer to make sure that that success continued? 
Um, yeah, the remarkable thing is that year on year, Klopp would um, would up, update the team um, and would basically um, bring in, uh, you know, I only think of uh, 2012-13, uh, you know, where he basically sold 11 players in one season. I mean, it was absolutely remarkable. And then the team went on to the Champions League final. I mean, um, you know, really quite astonishing um, the way that he would um, he would basically, uh, you know, keep refreshing the team every, every year. Um, as I said, I mean, um, essentially 2011-12, the club didn't only win the title, but also won the double. Um, and, um, and, and, and that in the most astonishing fashion, beating Bayern Munich 5-2 in the final. Um, where Lewandowski got three goals. And that was the most astonishing uh, achievement. I mean, for me, probably the greatest day in Dortmund's history. Uh, and that season, the only arrivals we actually had were Ilkay Gundogan, uh, who obviously is well-known, um, who came in for a paltry four million from Nuremberg, um, and Ivan Perisic, who's now at Bayern Munich. Um, so, you know... Um, <sighs> Really, essentially, uh, it wasn't it wasn't buying the title in two thousand the double in two thousand eleven twelve. It was it was just sheer uh, elan, flair, audacity, uh, and ability, and just having literally put together a team which um, where everything clicked basically from Mats Hummels to Roman Weidenfeller in goal. Um, you know the, the 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 atmosphere in the team was excellent. Felipe Santana, who scored the wonderful goal in the quarterfinal uh, that got us through against Malaga, and as I mentioned before, uh, Kevin Broskreutz, the young Dortmund lad who basically grew up on the terraces himself, much like Marco Royce now. And how could you fail to mention um, Mario Götze, who really? You know, I mean, essentially was probably the most talented um, player to come out of that Dortmund team. Yeah, it's uh, interesting that you, you mentioned Europe and, and we'll come to that in just a second, because I think, you know, domestically, obviously, Dortmund were, were impressing at that time. I think, you know, for, certainly for English audiences, though, maybe the Champions League was where they got to see a bit more of this Dortmund team and, and maybe saw a bit more of Jurgen Klopp as, as a manager and, and as a character, I suppose. I mean, the one that stands out, obviously, as you mentioned, the, the Malaga comeback in, in 2012-13 and the 4-1 win over Real Madrid as well is one that, you know, I think, you know, most Liverpool fans, that's where their first memories really of Jurgen Klopp would have been made. We've seen a lot of big European nights at Anfield under Jurgen Klopp. I mean, I'm sure our listeners and, and yourself don't need me to list them. There's there's plenty of them. Do you think there's something about Jurgen Klopp that makes those more likely when he's your manager? Um well, I mean, Jurgen Klopp is second to none. I mean, he's uh, he's a very astro- extraordinary human being. Um, he's he's really just somebody who uh, you know, he's not just an excellent football manager who's got a very very good uh, eye for, t- for for talented players to be able to bring you know bring out the best to them. He's above all. Um, we were talking about the 2011-12 and um, season and. Uh, Hennis Weisweiler was the coach of the great Borussia Mönchengladbach team of the 1970s that won uh, several Bundesliga titles, the the uh, the uh, the UEFA Cup and so on. And basically, uh, they were called uh, they were referred to by Matt Busby, the great Manchester United, as football uh, coach, as football perfection. Uh, in Germany, that Dortmund team of 2011 to 2012 uh, are considered to be the the heirs uh, of uh, of that extraordinary Borussia Mönchengladbach team, a team which will be familiar to to Liverpool fans, as you've had a long-standing fan friendship with Borussia Mönchengladbach and and many clashes in the 1970s between the two clubs in Europe. Um, so essentially, I mean, I think the thing with Kloppo is that he just he. He really embodied the spirit of Borussia Dortmund. What you see now, the yellow wall, the passion, um, the love, the commitment, the real kind of sense of unity, uh, it was all embodied in that one person. And I think he kind of just really brought brought he kind of brought the young players in and he formed them much like he's doing at Liverpool and then kind of formed them into the way that Dortmund thinks and Dortmund 
lives and it very much being a working class city that essentially lives and breathes football much like Liverpool uh, Klopper was just the right charismatic kind of personality and the young players he brought in quite a few from which came from the local region were people who really identified with um, the club but the main strength that Klopp had was that he had a very sound relationship very strong in fact much more than sound a very strong working relationship with Michael Zork the sporting director and all-time leading goal scorer and and um at Borussia Dortmund um who's been there now for over 40 years and uh, and also Aki Vatska uh, the well-known uh, chief executive of Borussia Dortmund so basically between the three of them um they really they had a plan they had a vision and they were able to fulfill it um but it didn't it wasn't based on the kind of spending that we've seen uh, perhaps at anfield which i'm sure some liverpool fans you know have sort of you know are not not that comfortable with the, the amount of money that liverpool spent but i think he's doing it in the right way at anfield because he's done it right from the ground up as well it's just that at dortmund dortmund is essentially a selling club they've never really had vast amounts of money and when they've tried to make it work with a lot of money it hasn't really worked so it has to be the Dortmund way and I think Kloppo very much embodied that yeah certainly Jurgen Klopp spent more at Liverpool than at Dortmund but I suppose there are definitely similarities we we see Michael Edwards and you know Mike Gordon behind the scenes with FSG at Liverpool now and, and certainly the three of those seem to have a good relationship so it's certainly interesting that the, there's definitely a parallel there I think between between Dortmund and Liverpool but uh, I'd like to, to move on really to the the style of play that Borussia Dortmund have um, I think the play that, that Liverpool have now and the tactical setup is maybe a bit different to, to what Jurgen Klopp had at Dortmund. I think a big part of the reason that Jurgen Klopp was maybe so popular in England before he moved over to the Premier League was this sort of heavy metal, all action, you know, sort of style. But was that every week at Dortmund? Because, I mean, for me, that would make sense in the big Champions League nights. But was this a regular occurrence? Was it always the same? I think the style, the style of management and the style of coaching, which is very enthusiastic and outgoing um, uh, as a person, um, is is very much Kloppo's style as a, as a as a personality. I mean, that seems self-evident. I'm sure most Liverpool fans would agree with that. He's uh, what we call in Germany a Kumpeltyp, which is basically a sort of matey kind of bloke, somebody who's uh, basically gets on with everyone. And you know, he basically became a, a real friend of the fans and a real friend of of the players. And and he kind of just embodied the spirit. But I think ultimately that. Um, you know the gig pressing um, and and the heavy metal football, as you said. Uh, you know, essentially, Dortmund have have had for some years now a very aggressive type of play, where they basically seek to dominate across the pitch and basically not c- complete possession football and counter attacking and so on. And um, essentially, um, that relies very much on very fast forwards. Um, you know, you only think, need to look at the team right now. People like Marco Royce, Ashraf Hakimi, um, who, who's one of the fastest players in, in Europe right now. Um, you know, essentially, they're, they're a young, dynamic and, and aggressive uh have an aggressive style of play. And that certainly um, is something that came out of the Jurgen Klopp era. And I think that we could say that, um, you know, similar, that cult of the personality and also that style of play and enthusiasm and, and, and commitment uh, is, is really very much the Liverpool way as well now. So I think essentially he's brought that quality to your, to, to your club as well, to, 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 to Anfield. Yeah, certainly it's uh, something that he's evolved and, and refined over the years. And I suppose a big part of the way that the team plays is the players that the team has. And, you know, you look at the names that he transformed. We've mentioned Robert Lewandowski already, Marco Royce yeah. as well, and, and countless others that he turned from, you know, very good players into world-class players at, at Borussia Dortmund. He's done exactly the same, I think, with Sadio Mane, Mohamed Salah, people like Andy Robertson, basically the whole team at Liverpool, I suppose. The big difference is that at Liverpool, he's been able to keep those players, whereas at Dortmund, he had to sell them. Absolutely right, yeah. I mean, obviously, Bayern, you know, were famous for poaching um, Dortmund's players. Um, 
they poached players like uh, Mats Hummels, uh, Mario Götze, and then Robert Lewandowski, um, and essentially buying the league for themselves. Um, but we only need to think of, uh, you know, Man United buying Shinji Kagawa, uh, Lucas Barrios left us as well, which was the top striker at the time. And then you can start to see the cracks, basically. Um, think about, you know, Robert Lewandowski. He was a 20, 24 goal a season kind of player. And, uh, you know, when he basically uh, left for Bayern, um, essentially the cracks started to show in Dortmund. Um, and those cracks were very difficult to fill. So um, I think the problem is always going to be in Dortmund um, is that basically it's a working class city. It's an industrial city. And um, there's always going to be a limit to how much, particularly in Germany, because of the mentality they have, people are willing to pay for tickets. So essentially, while you could probably, you know, have a, a Westfalenstadion, the Dortmund Stadium of, of, of you know, 160,000 capacity rather than 80,000, and you'd probably still fill it half of the season. Um, there is a limit to how much money, basically, um, Dortmund have. And so essentially what happens then in uh, season 13, 14, and 14, 15 is that, you know, you lose people like Mario Götze, you lose people like Mats Hummels. And then essentially what happens is that Dortmund then try, as they always try every season, to bring in, uh, you know, replacements at a, at a, you know, who are much younger and less experienced. Uh, you know, as we've seen with Jaden Sancho, the club are excellent at bringing out the best in players. And they were very lucky that Lewandowski's replacement, uh, you know, um, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang happened to be the right guy. But for every... Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, there's also been, uh, you know, other players who, who have not worked at all. Um, and it's just basically, you know, like um, uh, Leonardo Bittencourt, Moritz Leitner and so on. They just haven't worked at Dortmund. And so essentially, you know, that kind of trial and error, you know, Dortmund just cannot afford to buy the players. And, and eventually, you know, it goes wrong and it did go wrong uh, when they bought uh, Chiro Immobile then. Uh, who came in basically as the Serie A's best goal scorer at, at Torino and then essentially, uh, you know, was a huge disappointment scoring only three goals despite coming in for what for Dortmund at the time uh, in 14-15 was a, a very huge amount of uh, £17 million. You know, that basically, you have to, when you're looking at the Bundesliga, you have to kind of be aware that, you know, the the transfers in, in the Bundesliga are very, very apart from Bayern. They're very, very different. Dortmund's record uh, transfer was 30 million. And that was Andre Schürrle. So, you know, who's well known to, to, to Premier, Premier League fans. So, you know, we're not really dealing with the same kind of level of uh, commitment uh, financially. You know, obviously the tickets are much cheaper in Dortmund. So, you know, it, it has its pluses and its minuses. But essentially, um, there were some big... Uh, transfers that just didn't work out. And the very worst of all was Chiro Immobile, who, by the way, now is the top leading scorer in Europe at Lazio. Yeah, certainly a, a player that has come good eventually, but just didn't work out at Dortmund. I mean, I mentioned Jurgen Klopp sort of developing players and that kind of thing. I mean, who do you think had the, the most impressive development under him at, at Dortmund? And is there anyone at, at Liverpool who maybe you see in a similar sort of way? Um... Well, funnily enough, um, a player who played for Liverpool and Dortmund is one of, uh, he came in at 16 years old. He's the youngest ever player to play in the Bundesliga. And whilst he may not always have fulfilled his potential, I think that um, the fact that he was bought by Real Madrid and Liverpool um, makes Nuri Shahin uh, a, a very Im impressive defensive midfielder at Borussia Dortmund. But I don't think, apart from Robert Lewandowski, perhaps, um, and, 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 and his colleague, uh, his Polish colleagues, uh, Kuba Blaszczykowski and also, um, also uh, Lukas Piszczek, the three Poles in the team. I don't think really you can put your finger on, on, on anything, any, any others in particular, but rather it's more to do with the cohesion in the team and just the way that they basically came together. And there was just a very sort of hardcore of a group of players who got on exceptionally well and just basically moulded and, and were really just a, 
an, an outstanding team. So it wasn't really that Dortmund had the means to go out and buy the players, but it was rather just the way they, they came together as a unit uh, and got on well. And I think having played football myself uh, at amateur level for 20 years, I think that was my own experience as well, that when the teamwork is right, the team spirit, the kind of relationship between the players, much like that amazing generation of Manchester United players, dare I even say that word, on a Liverpool podcast, but, um, you know, the Paul Scholes and David Beckham and so on, they were just a bunch of people who just got on really well. And and I'm using that analogy um, really just to sort of explain that um, it was more about, apart from Lewandowski, who is the out-and-out outstanding purchase that, you know, Dortmund brought in, um, I think it's more to do with the, the unity rather than anything else. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. In terms of where it sort of went wrong for, for Dortmund in the transfer market, obviously you mentioned Immobile and, and there was a couple of others that, that didn't really work out for Dortmund. I mean, were there any lessons really that, that Klopp could learn from that time? Was it a case of not planning enough? Was it just a case of the budget not being sufficient to, to go out and buy proper replacements for, for Lewandowski or who would it be? Or, or, you know, you know, whoever else that, that left for Bayern at, at, at that time. I mean... Yeah, was it Jurgen Klopp's fault? Is there anything that he could change in, in the future to make sure that, say, that doesn't happen at Liverpool? I, I think there's a couple of things to remember. One is that um, by Dortmund, Borussia Dortmund have been very close to bankruptcy on three different occasions, which is uh, in the 1970s when they were going down to when they went down to the second division and spent four years in the second division. Um, and then in the 1980s, um, and then another time in 2005 when they were very close to going under, which is not unusual in in that particular area, uh, industrial area of Germany. Schalke uh, 04, the neighbours, have also been relegated several times and have also been extremely close to going bankrupt several times. It's not a wealthy neighbourhood, much like Liverpool, I hope I hope you accept me saying that, but much like Liverpool now, let's say, it suffered from very bad industrial decline over the years because of the end of uh, steel and coal and so on and the industries that it's relied on. And whilst Dortmund, along with the club, have reinvented themselves, there's always going to be a limit to how much money is available for the club. And you can't really compare the regions of Bavaria with, with the Westphalia uh, region of Dortmund uh, because of, you know, there's so much more wealth in the south of Germany. And so essentially, when you look at Borussia Dortmund, you have to remember that those three, particularly the 2005 crisis, which you go, Jürgen Klopp, uh, sorry, uh, Aki Vatska and Susie Zork, the, the manager, Susie's just his nickname, Michael Zork, um, inherited that position they've basically been the constant throughout and that memory of almost going bankrupt and losing the club which was really very close always is very much in the dna of borussia dortmund as you see them now and so you know this friday we're doing a show on football finances comparing premier league and um, and borussia and borussia dortmund and the bundesliga uh, on my podcast that, that you came on uh, the dortmund podcast and essentially what we're just looking at is really why German clubs are so much more conservative in the way they handle things and um, the way they basically manage things and achieve, aim to achieve profit. So, you know, just to put it in context, if I'm not mistaken, um, Manchester United has a deficit of, I believe, they've got a, a deficit on their balance sheet of about £500 million. Borussia Dortmund make a profit for the last three years of over €30 million. Euros. So essentially, with no debts, no, they, they own their own ground, they own their own stadium and so on. So essentially, every year the club is now looking to, because they're a publicly quoted company, they're looking to bring in a profit and pay a dividend on the share. And so the first thing for the club is to manage their finances in a sound way, return a dividend to the shareholders and make sure that they're not spending more money than they have. 
And I think that is the mindset, and that's what needs to be understood about Borussia Dortmund, is that the straitjacket, let's say, that was imposed upon Jurgen Klopp in his last two seasons, that perhaps was one of the reasons that he ended up leaving, although an eight-year stretch with the club. I mean, let's be frank, you know, that's an enormously impressive commitment. I just think that he probably felt somewhat restricted. I think the Chiro Immobile it really broke him in terms of, you know, that that failure, basically, um, you know, to, to integrate the guy into the team and to bring him into the team spirit, which Immobile himself said at the time. He said, I didn't really fit into the mentality and I didn't feel at home. Um, it just kind of brought the whole atmosphere down. And I think that he just felt it was time to leave. I can't draw too many parallels with Liverpool. I think what he seems to be doing at Liverpool is very, very sound um, and, uh you know, the addition of someone like Kai Havertz, I think, would be a fantastic addition. So, if anything, I think Karius was the only mistake that um, that uh, Kloppo has done so far in the transfer market. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it's interesting to to hear you talk about the straight jacket and that that, that he had at Dortmund because I think, obviously, Liverpool uh, do have a significant transfer budget compared to Dortmund, but there are similarities in that, you know, Liverpool have been close to administration and, and they're not, you know, too distant past. And, you know, Jurgen Klopp has sort of had to deal with certain restrictions, certainly in comparison to, to Manchester United and, and Manchester City. And uh, one of the players that, that potentially Liverpool could be battling those two clubs and, and probably and not a lot of other clubs, let's be honest, across Europe for whether that's this summer or or maybe in future, is Jaden Sancho, of course, a player that you as a Borussia Dortmund fan will know very well. I mean, are you hopeful that, that Jaden Sancho might stay at Dortmund? Do you think it, it you know, the time is right for him to move on? And and if he does move on, would you like to see him join up with Jurgen Klopp? I think Matt, it's enormously clear that um, Dortmund essentially being a selling club um, are not going to be able to hold on to Jaden Sancho. Um, you know, um, it's it's just not it's not feasible. Um, you know, he came in at 17 years old for three and a half million from Man City, uh, and um, they're going to want to. Um, you know, they're going to want to cash in on him sooner or later. It's just not feasible, unfortunately. Um, I think if we, you know. Uh, people in Dortmund are saying that, you know, under the current circumstances of Corona and so on, that um, football is in such a state of flux. Um, and, you know, um, and I think I agree with that. I think anyone would agree with that, that there is a potential, particularly when you consider that Jaden's salary has just been increased um, to uh, to just under that of Marco Royce to 10 million euros a season, which is, you know, consider Marco Royce. I mean, he's the most you know, the most respected player, the club captain and so on, and the leader in the team and and, 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 and a top performer um, for, for, for a 20-year-old to be on 10 million at Dortmund is absolutely amazing. I mean, Jaden's now on a fantastic deal at Borussia Dortmund, but, you know, he can earn double that um, somewhere in the Premier League, um, you know, somewhere like uh, Man United, Chelsea or, or even Liverpool, in my opinion. Would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. Liverpool uh, certainly probably going to be looking at him. I think it's, it's more the, the transfer fee, really. I don't know how much you'd expect Borussia Dortmund in, in normal times to demand for him, but I mean, probably north of 100 million. Absolutely, 100% right. Yeah, I think, um, you know, nowadays when you're talking about players like Neymar and so on, and also um, a player that Dortmund sold uh, two seasons ago, Usman Dembele, uh, going for 130 million. I think now we are talking about, um, you know, these type of astronomical amounts of money. However, saying that, I think that that's going to become more of a rarity than anything else. But I mean, Dortmund are very clever with business. I mean, think about Usman Dembele for a second. He came in from Rennes, France, uh, you know, right winger, an excellent right winger for 13 million. And by the end of the season, they'd sold him to Barcelona for 130 million. That's just an example, really, of the kind of business that Dortmund do. I mean, uh, you know, it's they 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 will make money out of uh, Jaden Sancho, and they'll make a lot of it. Um, it will be north of a hundred million for sure. But will it happen this summer? I'm not sure. I still think that there are clubs out there that are so well funded. 
in in the corporate led uh, Premier League, like um, you know, the, the, these big corporations backing these football clubs and so on, where they can basically afford to bring in those type of glamorous players. But I think it's probably far less players now than it was in the past. I think it's much more because of, if I'm not mistaken, there's a restriction on Man City and Barcelona right now because of the UEFA, the FIFA fair, the fair play breaking the fair play regulations I think the the restriction on Manchester City is that they'll be banned from Champions League football next season um, so they can still buy players but of course that makes it a lot more difficult potentially yeah I think Barcelona have that restriction that I mentioned so I really only see clubs perhaps like Liverpool and uh, and Real Madrid and so on being interested but my opinion about Jaden as a person having met him uh, is that he's very much a, uh, an English lad and he loves it in London. He loves he loves being back here in England. He comes back to London whenever he can. He supports uh, he supports a local football team in, uh, in in Lambeth where he grew up, and uh, you know he uh, he loves to be back here with his friends. And Dortmund is it, it's a cool place, but it's definitely not it's not Liverpool. In fact, you know it's not it's not just not London. It's not Liverpool. You know, it, it is, it's very quiet and, you know, it's fantastic for a young player to focus on their career. But a, young, a, a chap like, uh, like Obama Yang or, or, uh, or, or young Jaden, you know, they want to be in the high life. They want to be having fun, going to parties and hanging out. And that's the thing that Premier League really has. You know, it has some of the most glamorous and successful players in the world. And, you know, it's the sort of the what they've created is the NBA or the NFL of, of, of soccer, of football, basically. And uh, I think any young player would aspire to be there, and Jaden's no different. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, interesting to see the, the London connection and, and whether he'll end up at maybe a London club, or certainly Manchester or, or Liverpool in the northwest will will certainly be there or thereabouts, I'm sure. But uh, we'll move on anyway. And I, I mentioned before that it's, it's five years ago that, that Jurgen Klopp's final game uh, as Borussia Dortmund boss at home uh, took place. He obviously then lost in uh, the cup final. Kevin De Bruyne's Wolfsburg at the time beat them a week later, but this was his, his final home fixture. I think for me, what stands out from sort of looking back on that day and, and from what I remember of it from the time is that connection really between himself, the coaching staff, the players and the fans. And I think that's certainly something that he's seemed to, to replicate at Liverpool I mean, those scenes when he left, the, I don't know whether you were there on that day when, when he departed Dortmund, but they were really incredible, weren't they? Yeah, um, the final game against Werder Bremen, which Dortmund won um, quite quite in quite a lucky way. They, they managed to turn Werder Bremen over 3-2, um, was very much like that final season. Um, you know, you only need to think about... Dortmund were bottom of the league, literally 18th place in the Bundesliga at Christmas. And it was the most astonishing turnaround from having had the worst first half of the season because the German league is broken into two halves before December, before Christmas and after. They restart again in January after having a one-month break, which I think, by the way, is a very sensible thing. But, um, you know, um, essentially... Dortmund managed to make seventh place and by virtue of the fact that Wolfsburg are second and Wolfsburg are playing us in the final, uh, I say us because you know, <laughs> I live and breathe this club, as you can tell. I've been following them since the early 1980s when I lived in Dortmund with my parents. Uh, and um, essentially, uh, they managed to scrape into Europe. They managed to scrape into the DFB Pokal final, which we end up losing to Wolfsburg, um, who have a fantastic season uh, that that season. But you know, it just wasn't the Dortmund anymore that uh, that, that people expected. And um, in in April, uh, after the three-one loss to Borussia Mönchengladbach, there's a press conference. Um, Aki Vatska announces that uh, Jürgen Klopp is leaving and you can almost see Vatska and Zork, uh, the chief executive and the sporting director, very, very emotional, very close to, you know, welling up basically uh, when Kloppo says that he's going to be leaving at the end of the season. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a hug between Vatska, who's the older chief executive and, and Klopp, uh, 
And it's, it's a very emotional moment. And I think it's one of those moments a bit like, you know, I remember when John Lennon was shot in 1981. Um, and um, I remember walking down the high street in Pershaw with my mom and then seeing it on the teletext on a, on a, on a, on a, a shop window uh, that was selling tellies at the time. Because as you remember, in the 19, early 80s, they only had you know, teletext on TVs. We didn't have the internet. And, um, and my mom was a huge uh, Beatles fan, uh, my mom, Shana. So, uh, you know, it was a huge moment for her to hear that her, her idol, her childhood idol had died. And much like John Lennon was an idol for my mum and somebody who inspired my mum to feel kind of like enthused and, and really like in the, in, the, in the midst of life. For me, I think Jurgen Klopp, uh, as a manager of Borussia Dortmund, uh, was somebody who accompanied me on my, you know, on my journey for eight years and really made me feel like, uh, you know, there was, he just enthused every every part of Borussia Dortmund and we fans were no different. And so when he finally left the club um, that day against Werder Bremen, uh, 23rd of May, 2015, I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, it was a, a very sad moment for, for everyone. Um, you only need to look at the choreography, uh, you know, the massive choreography of, of Jurgen Klopp uh, and uh, and the way that he he walked around the ground from each stand, and he 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 basically took his hat off to every stand and clapped, and it just and it was also the day when Sebastian Kale, the the thirteen year captain, uh, left the club, and uh, you know it was just very very emotional, and and um, and and Kloppo's been back recently um, uh, to celebrate the um, sorry he's been he's been back in touch doing various different online. Um, you know, Zoom conferences and things to celebrate um, the ninth anniversary of uh, of that first title, and uh, and he's also been back. He went back last year to promote Kivatska's uh, biography, um, and uh, which came out in December. And um, you know, he's he's very much part of the furniture at Dortmund. He has two season tickets. He has a lovely house just outside Dortmund, which I've been to. Uh, I've got a little story for you on that one. And, um, you know, he's not from Dortmund. He's not from the region. He comes from the southwest near Freiburg, uh, the Mainz area. And uh, But he, he loves it in Dortmund. And he just really understands the mentality. And the reason that a lot of top managers don't fit in at Dortmund, much like Thomas Tuchel, who's done so well at PSG, is simply, it's a bit like Merseyside, I reckon, you either understand the people and they understand you and they accept you or they don't and you don't. And if you don't get it, then you're just not the right man. And I think that he understands Liverpool specifically because he really understood the working class mentality in Dortmund. You know, money is very hard to come by in Dortmund. And I think people in Liverpool can relate to that. Essentially, what I'm saying is that there's a there's a kind of you know um, there's, they've both been hit over the decades with with a decline an industrial decline and, and have had to reinvent themselves and they're both cities which are hugely proud of their of their football club and that really live and breathe the football club. Yeah, definitely. You, you mentioned that you've been to, to Jurgen Klopp's house, and I've heard this story before from you. But I think our listeners will be interested as well because there's a special meaning, isn't there, behind the house number that he lived uh, in Dortmund? Kloppo's house has got number thirteen um, in front of the house. That that is his house number. He lives uh, in front of Nuri Shahin and next to the Brazilian Dortmund legend Dede. Uh, it's a lovely white house um, with a swimming pool and a big wall around it. It's a beautiful forested area. Uh, a lot of the Dortmund players live in that area and uh, yeah, very much kind of secluded and private. Number thirteen is the uh, is the main uh, ultras block in the in the Dortmund Cop, which is basically the Zutribuna. and uh, it's a yellow number thirteen. Needless to say, yellow and black. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I don't know. I, I really. Yeah, it, it's hard. It's hard not to feel a, a certain kind of inspiration or affection for, for Kloppo. He's, he's really one of a kind, isn't he? Let's be honest. Yeah, definitely. There's uh, an affinity between Dortmund and, and him to this day. But I mean, when the time came for him to depart, do you think there wasn't really any other option? Do you think that was you know, the, the right time and the right moment for him to leave? 
it was 100% the right time and the right moment to leave. Uh, it was a change of circumstances, a change of, uh, it was time for something new, uh, new in terms of the club's strategy. And, and, and basically it was the time for, uh, for, for a renewal, a major renewal, which was achieved under Thomas Tuchel uh, when we went on a match, which I was at, by the way, uh, to win the 2017 DFB Pokal final against Frankfurt. And, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, uh, as I said before, Tuchel was not the right kind of personality to fit in at Dortmund. And he managed to fall out with a lot of people, including Sven Mismtat, who was the uh, major talent scout at Dortmund that had found so many of the amazing talents under Jurgen Klopp. Uh, diamond eye as they call him in Dortmund but uh, Missentat then uh, left basically because of Tuchel and ended up at Arsenal he's now back at Stuttgart uh, and it can't be underestimated you know you asked about coaching staff and so on and some of the people that made Dortmund at the time he was certainly one of them um, but uh, you know that when the time came it was definitely time to change and um, you know I think essentially um, Dortmund have struggled a bit to find the right manager since I mean, they've had three three managers, three four managers, uh, including an interim manager, Peter Stoger, since, and um, it just you know you either fit in in Dortmund or you don't. It's as simple as that. Do you think he could ever go back and, and manage Dortmund again, or is that chapter now completely closed? Oh, um, I think that's a fantastic question, and um, my instinct tells me that. Um, when something's been so perfect, you know, th th there's that old adage, you never go back to the scene of the crime. And I'm not essentially making an analogy between Gloppo's era at Dortmund, which was magnificent and then a crime scene. But what I'm basically saying is that there's something so perfect about that era uh, that I, I think a lot of people would feel that we've kind of been there, done that. And I don't know quite how much he could add, really. Um, I think people are enormously impressed. The fans in Dortmund are enormously impressed. Everyone's enormously impressed. And and, and, and I've really uh, felt a sense of identity. I mean, I run the London fan club of BVB. And one of the inquiries I get most is, can you get us tickets to go and watch Liverpool? Um, and uh, particularly this season. And... Um, I, I don't. I don't necessarily think that Dortmund would would hire Kloppo back. It's my. It's just my point of view, and and I and I'm just one of many, many, many fans. Um, I, I just. I'm not sure. I think the DFB job taking over from um, from Jurgi Lo, uh, the German national coach. I think that's a, a potential match made in heaven. But um, I, I'm not sure that Kloppo would ever consider managing Bayern because of his genuine heartfelt loyalty to to Dortmund much like I don't think he would probably go to Manchester United after having been at Liverpool he's that kind of guy he's a, he's a genuine guy but I, I my opinion I, I don't speak for anyone apart from myself is that Gloppo would not necessarily go back to manage Dortmund but I could see him having some relationship with Dortmund in the future you know, um, perhaps sporting director um, or, or some role within Dortmund, perhaps in a few years when he's he wants to take a back seat. It'll certainly be interesting, won't it? Because uh, obviously you mentioned that the German national team job. I mean, Jurgen Klopp has spoken in the past about not wanting to take that many jobs in his lifetime. He wants to experience life and, and do other things as well. But I don't know, maybe you'll know better than me. Maybe he'll, he'll end up at, at Dortmund in some form, as you say, maybe as a, a sporting director or something like that. Or, or certainly I could, could see him going back and, and living in Dortmund full-time once again. Do you think that's you know maybe the, the most likely scenario for him? I couldn't answer that. I'm afraid I have absolutely no idea. He's got two season tickets, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, certainly. Well, uh, he won't be leaving Liverpool, we know that for sure, until uh, his contract ends. That's the uh, the end of the 2023-24 the campaign. But certainly, like Reds fans, those in, in Dortmund, it seems, will no doubt remember him for a long, long time to come after that. So, uh, you know, obviously, the, the Champions League win last season, the Premier League, surely this one as well. I mean, just as a, a final question, really, for you, Ben, I mean... 
how much uh, a Borussia Dortmund or how much have they been cheering on Liverpool this season? Because you mentioned the uh, the sort of affinity for Klopp and the fact that you get asked for, for Liverpool tickets and, and trips to Anfield and things like that. I mean, have Borussia Dortmund fans sort of moved on from Klopp and, and now want him to do well elsewhere? <laughs> this is quite funny that you asked me that because I remember taking a, a slight offence at um, Tom uh, on, on the show that you came on when we did the Liverpool uh, Dortmund special, which was a, a great uh, show, by the way. Thank you so much for coming on that, uh, where we could just celebrate our, our, you know, you never walk alone and what so much what we've got in common between the two clubs. Um, but uh, Mark Tom said at the time that I was pining after Liverpool fans to to uh, to follow our, our Borussia. And much like uh, that's what I hear when you say that you know, to Dortmund fans like Liverpool. Um, I don't think you're pining after Dortmund fans. I don't think anyone at Anfield pines after Borussia Dortmund fans to follow their club. But I would say that... You've got three legendary football teams, in my opinion, um, that have that you never walk alone anthem and that share, basically share their roots from a kind of, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but from a Catholic kind of background, uh, you know, it's a working class Catholic background. That's Borussia Dortmund, Celtic and Liverpool. And um, I think that... um, it's very well known that Liverpool has a similar identity, that the city is quite, uh, has been through a lot of what Dortmund has been through in terms of industrial decline, and that the city, that the people in Liverpool adore their football team, much like the people in Dortmund live for their football club. And that level of authenticity, that level of um, sincerity um, and, 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 and commitment um, is, 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 you know, something which... Um, is absolutely unbeatable in football, um, and it just creates such a sense of loyalty and identity with the football team. And I think that um, it's no surprise that the Liverpool fans are always welcomed when they come to Dortmund. We've had some great games over the years, you know, the '66 final, um, European Cup winners final, which Dortmund won on that occasion. But then I remember travelling up with the Liverpool, London Liverpool uh, uh, Reds, the the fan club to the 2016 quarter-final, which we unfortunately lost, having been 3-1 up at half-time. And I remember the Liverpool fans clapping us off and shaking our hands when we left the ground. And, you know, to be frank with you, Matt, half of our London fan club members were actually in the cop watching the game, and they were wearing their, their yellow shirts. And when you guys came over 2016, I had Liverpool friends who were watching the game with us on the Zoo Tribuna, and there was no sense of animosity or lack of anything, uh, you know. So I think the relationship, um, sorry to say this to Borussia Mönchengladbach fans, but I think the relationship um, is very strong between um, Liverpool and Dortmund as, as clubs. You know, they played each other in a friendly in Hong Kong last summer. They played one in the US the summer before that. But also between the fans. I mean, yes, we get a lot of inquiries about tickets to go to Anfield. Um, I've had... About a dozen people this season from Liverpool, from the London Liverpool fan club, have bought tickets from us to go to watch Dortmund in the Westfalen Stadion. Um, you know, they always come back with a yellow and black scarf. The relationship's really good. And um, I think, uh, you know, someone like Mario Götze or even Jaden Sancho, heaven forbid, moving to Anfield, uh, can only strengthen the relationship. Yeah, certainly. There's a, a lot of affinity between the two clubs and, and Jurgen Klopp is a big part of that, I think, as well. But uh, that's all we've got time for on today's Blood Red podcast. But it's worth mentioning that the Bundesliga is now back, of course, as well. So if you want to catch Jaden Sancho and Borussia Dortmund, it's worth checking out BT Sport for viewers in the UK. Uh, There's obviously plenty of players with Liverpool connections and those who are being linked with transfer moves to Liverpool as well. We also did a podcast with German football commentator Kevin Hatchard on April the 16th. So wherever you got this podcast from, if you missed that one, you can go back and listen. We talked about Jadon Sancho, Timo Werner, Kai Havertz and plenty of others in the Bundesliga. For now, though, thank you for listening or watching and we'll see you next time on the Blood Red channel. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.